All right, good morning, everybody. Um, this is Biblical Biographies, specifically of Gideon. So if you did not plan on being Biblical Biographies, you are in the wrong room, um, which usually I wouldn't feel bad, uh, you know, saying like, oh, maybe you're in the wrong room. But there are now like three classes on Sundays, and I've directed like multiple people this morning on where to go. So just figured I'd make that announcement, like the professor who's making sure to see everyone's in the right place. Uh, <coughs> what's that? This isn't math. Uh, and thank the Lord, because I'm so bad at math. It's unbelievable. Um, so our aim today is to go through the life of Gideon. So we're going we're gonna, to, it's basically two-ish chapters. So Judges chapter six through eight-ish. Um, and we're going to, yeah, just biblically go through his life. Then we're going to try to draw out some theological implications from his life. And then finally, think through some practical applications from the life of Gideon. We'll spend the bulk of our time um, going over the, the biblical story of Gideon. Um, but that's, that's where I intend to take us. Uh, but before we do any of that, I'm just going to pray for our time together. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and worship as a good God who redeems his people. Um, you make the wisdom of the world foolish and you use foolish things to shame the wise lord uh you yeah you invert things in a glorious and wonderful way um the things that this world values uh are foolishness in your eyes and the things that this world does not value are glorious to you and so we we do pray that as we walk through the life of gideon that you would open our eyes to your truth that your word would be pressed upon our hearts and that our uh, affections for you would grow. I uh, pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so on your outline, our first, our first point is life in the time of the judges. And so I'm going to give us a bit of con context, contextual overview for what's going on in, the, in Israel during the time of the judges. Um, judges 17.6 <clears throat> says... Uh, and in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, and so what this means is that there is no authority in Israel. Uh, Israel has rejected uh, all authority, and everyone does what they think is best. Um, particularly, this is a statement about Israel rejecting the Lord's authority. So this is before the time of the kings in Israel. And so it was, it was supposed to be that the Israel would be uh, the Lord's covenant people. Uh, and he would rule them directly, um, perfectly, uh, and they would be, they would likewise meet the requirements of the covenant with him. Uh, but that's not what that's not what's happened. They've rejected the authority of God. So that first point there in point A is Israel rejects the Lord as king. Israel rejects the Lord as king. Everyone's doing what they think is best. <clears throat> and if you know anything about the judges. What they think is best uh, is actually quite bad. Um, there, is a, there is a cycle uh, of depravity happening in Israel throughout the judges. So um, after Joshua, Israel starts off pretty well. Joshua has established the Israelites in the promised land. Um, but what we see is this pattern of Israel uh, falling into sin, specifically, usually, idolatry, uh, and then the Lord allows the consequences of that to happen, whether that be oppression. Usually it's oppression from neighboring countries, uh, violent oppression and things of that nature. And then Israel responds by crying out to the Lord saying, please deliver us, please help us. At that point, the Lord sends a judge, raises up a judge. Uh, now a judge is not what we think of as a judge, like a, a person who's weighing legal matters, but rather somebody who's coming on behalf of God, an agent of God, to bring deliverance uh, and justice to the people of Israel. Uh, and so the judge brings the Lord's deliverance. <clears throat> Israel has peace for a time, and then the pattern starts all over again. They find themselves pursuing idolatry, uh, resulting oppression happens, another judge is sent for deliverance, rinse and repeat throughout the judges. And as this pattern is happening, uh, it's getting overall, the broader pictures, things are getting worse and worse. So you have this pattern, and each time the pattern seems to be getting worse and worse. By the end of the judges, now right before you get into Ruth, uh, it's, it's, it's bad. Uh, the tribe of Benjamin in particular is doing things that are 
absolutely unconscionable. You can look into that later if you want. So things are not great in Israel during the times of the judges. So point B here is that Israel is locked into a pattern of decline. Israel is locked into a pattern of decline. For our story today, we're going to talk about the, the tale of one specific judge, and that's Gideon. And if you're wondering, is are things the same during the time of Gideon? Let's look at Judges 6, uh, 1 through 6, and I'll read that for us. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So what we see is the same kind of pattern here. Israel's doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, we'll find out later that specifically they're pursuing idolatry. Baal and Ashtoreth worship classic idols in the time of Israel. And so the Lord gives them into the hands of their neighbors uh, to, to shake them from their stupor, shake them from their sin. And then they cry out for deliverance. So in... In Gideon's day, things are the same. And this is point C. Things are the same in Gideon's day. This, this pattern of decline is continuing in the day of Gideon. <clears throat> so here we have Israel, yet again, as a result of their own sin, being oppressed by neighboring countries. And this oppression is specifically aimed at things like food. So their neighboring countries, the Amalekites, the Midianites, they're coming and they're taking their crops. They're taking their food. And so... This is a desperate situation for an agrarian society where it's, you know, they don't have large reserves of food. Um, the, the harvest is going to make or break their entire year. This is, a, a, in, in no small terms, an existential threat to Israel's existence. So this oppression um, is serious. Uh, the text goes as far as to say the Midianites and the other neighbors leave no sheep or ox or donkey. So not only are they taking their food, but they're taking animals that could help them produce food. So this is desperate times. And so out of all of this, Israel is suffering, and so they call out to the Lord for deliverance. And so now we have Gideon's call. Point two, Gideon's call. Uh, and essentially we're going to look at Judges 11, uh, 6, sorry, Judges 6, 11 through 24 here. And this is the call of Gideon. <clears throat> uh, I'll read that text for us now. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth. Terebinth is a big tree, like an oak. Terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joas, the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said to him, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and broth he put in a pot, and brought them to him under the terebinth, and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and unleavened cakes, and put them on this rock, and pour the broth over them. And he did so. 
Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizrites. So this is Gideon's call. And point A is the Lord is with weak Gideon. The Lord is with weak Gideon. A few things to note from this call. Uh, Gideon says, why are you calling me? I am, my family, my clan is the least in my tribe and I'm the least of my family. I am the weakest. In fact, the angel of the Lord comes to him while he's, uh, he's gathering crops in a wine press. Essentially, why, why is he doing this? Why is he in a wine press? Well, essentially he's hiding uh, his agrarian work from the Midianites. He's trying to prepare food and store food and glean food in a place where the Midianites will not see him, so they do not come and take it from him. So this, so Gideon here is a weak member of his family, which is a weak member of his clan, which is a weak member of the tribe, which is the weakest tribe in Israel. Within that, Gideon is trying to store food in a wine press hidden from the enemy. So it doesn't exactly scream someone who's a worthy warrior. And yet the angel says to him, man of valor, I'm with you. And so what this is telling us is that the Lord is with weak Gideon. And what that means is it's not going to be Gideon's mighty arms or strategic cunning that's going to bring victory to Israel. It's going to be the Lord's. Um, and so this is important for us to note as we consider implications from the life of Gideon. It's, it's the Lord is, doesn't use the strong, but he uses the weak so that no one may boast. And this is what he says later. So this is the call of Gideon. So Gideon is called and he responds well. Um, then point B here is Gideon contends with Baal. So the, after the Lord calls Gideon, he then goes to contend with Baal. And this is at the behest of the Lord. And you see this in Judges 6, 25 through 32. In that text, <clears throat> actually, I'll have somebody read it for us. Would somebody like to read Judges 6, 25 through 32? Dave, go for it. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, and the second bull seven years old, and pull down the altar of all that your father has, and even cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bowl and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So the first thing the Lord has Gideon do is attack Israel's first problem. Israel's first problem is not the Midianites, even though that seems awfully urgent, given that they're taking their food. Israel's first problem is idolatry. And so the Lord has Gideon attack that idolatry head on. He instructs Gideon that night, that very night, so don't wait, go and do it, pull down the idol of Baal. And so Gideon does so. Now, the text tells us that he's afraid, and this is something we're going to focus on. Uh, I'll do a bit of a spoiler. A lot of people give Gideon um, guff, critique, for being kind of a scaredy cat. I actually don't think that's what we see. I think we see someone who's afraid and yet still obeys the word of the Lord, which I would see as courage. Um, and so what he does <clears throat> is he goes in the night because he's afraid of the townspeople killing him, but he still obeys the word of the Lord and pulls down the idol. We see in the next text, the next section of text here, that he was not wrong to be afraid. The townspeople are very upset and want to do violence to Gideon. Uh, Gideon's father essentially says, well, isn't Baal a god? Let Baal contend for Baal. And at that point, they leave Gideon alone. But they start to call him uh, Jerubbabel, which essentially means contends with Baal. 
Um, and so Gideon, because he go he listens to the Lord and goes after Israel's first problem, idolatry, specifically Baal, he gets a new name as someone who contends with this idol, Baal. And so that's what we see under Gideon's call. The Lord is with weak Gideon, and then Gideon contends with Baal. Uh, now we're going to move on to the next problem that Israel has, which is the Midianites. So we've Gideon has attacked Israel's idolatry head on, but there still is the reality of the oppression from their neighbors, most intensely the Midianites. So the Lord prepares Gideon and Israel for war. The Lord prepares Gideon and Israel for war. And so this is essentially from Judges 6.34 and onward. Um, under, beneath this, point A, the Lord's preparations are not conventional. Uh, yeah, I'll say that. I think if I'm planning a war, um, I want superior numbers, superior firepower, the best strategy, all of these things. Uh, I'm not a military guy. Uh, Dave Wilcox is, so he probably could educate you all better on how to execute good military strategy. That's not what Gideon does here at all. Um, and there's a reason for that, and we'll get to it. But there's, as we go through the next section of text, it's just, just put in your mind how unusual some of these preparations for war are. Some of them make some sense, but most of them are, are quite, quite bizarre. In Judges 6.34, we see that uh, Gideon is clothed by the Spirit of the Lord. And so this is point B. Gideon is clothed by the Spirit of the Lord. This is particularly unusual in the Old Testament. Uh, it doesn't happen very often, this language of being clothed by the Spirit of the Lord. And so there's a unique way in which the Lord equips Gideon to do battle, to help rescue his people. Um, and the Spirit of the Lord is with him. This is also important for helping us think through Gideon's actions through the next sections of text. So Gideon is clothed by the Spirit of the Lord. This is one of the preparations that the Lord makes for war. Um, so then Gideon does something that makes sense to us. Yeah, good. Oh, the Lord's preparations are not conventional. Um, Gideon then does something that makes some sense to us. Gideon calls for soldiers from certain tribes. So point C there is Gideon calls for soldiers. Judges 6.35 tells us that he, Gideon, sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali. And they went up to meet him. Uh, and his own tribe is with him as well. So Gideon is now gathering soldiers for the war with Midian. This makes this makes some sense. Um, so he's gathering an army. He's going to do battle. Uh, but the next thing is that the Lord gives the army the sign of peace. This is D. Uh, sorry, the sign of the fleece. D, the Lord gives the army the sign of the fleece. Uh, this is uh, Judges 6, 36 through the end, um, with, uh, through verse 40. Judges 6, 36 through 40. Would somebody read that for us? Mainly because I need to drink. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered. It's good. Anybody have a guess as to what is happening here? If you don't, that's okay. Dave, good. Like, he's looking for confirmation. Like, okay, God, I've trusted you, I've obeyed, but. I've still got some doubts. So can you can you confirm like that this is this is really you and this is really what you want me to do? Any other thoughts? So go ahead. Isn't this often cited as like what not to do? Testing the Lord. So both of you, yes. So both of you. Um, are giving a good rendering of what the traditional reading of this particular section is. I'm, certainly, I grew up thinking that same thing. Um, but reading the test, text this past week and also looking at some of the commentaries, um, it's important to remember that the Spirit of the Lord is... Gideon's already been clothed in the Spirit of the Lord, and he's gathered his army. So is the sign of the fleece for Gideon, 
or is it to show the people he's gathered that the Lord is with them? So my interpretation of the sign is that Gideon is already convinced that the Lord is with them, but he's trying to give a sign to his people that the Lord is with them as well. One of the reasons I've, I'm convinced of this particular position is Gideon's story actually uh, mirrors Moses' story in quite a number of ways. And so Moses, too, is given signs to demonstrate his authority. He sticks his hand inside of his cloak, it comes out leprous, back in, comes out clean. Uh, staff into snake. And so these are signs to affirm that Moses is, is the, yeah, Moses is serving the Lord and the Lord is with them. I think in the same way, uh, Gideon is, is doing this to show the army he's gathered, some 32,000 people, that the Lord is with them. You've got to remember the context here of a people that's been oppressed by the Midianites and losing all of their food and they're in desperate situations. Them being afraid makes a ton of sense. Um, and I think what really, the other thing that kind of convinced me of this is that Gideon is already clothed in the spirit of the Lord. And so I don't think he needs convincing. I do think he wants to show the, the people that have gathered that the Lord is with them and they don't need to be afraid. The fleece itself, the actual symbolism here, is the fleece is wet and the ground is dry and then it reverses. The fleece is dry and the ground is wet. And what I take that to mean, and I think the text, I'm quite confident the text is saying this, is what the Lord is saying is, You've been oppressed, and the Midianites have been oppressing you, and it's going to flip, right? So right now, the situation is dire. You are in deep trouble. So fleece is wet, dry as ground. But we're going to flip those, and now you're going to be relieved from the oppression that you're facing. And so I think this is a sign to the Israelites that the Lord is with them. All right, so uh, that is point C. Uh, point D, the Lord gives the army, oh, sorry, point E, the Lord reduces Gideon's army by 99%. Point E, the Lord reduces Gideon's army by 99%. So here's where we start getting the tactics that make no sense. Um, uh, I won't read the text, but I'll give a very loose uh, summary of what happens here. So essentially, the Lord tells Gideon, we need to reduce the size of this army. Because I don't want anyone to operate under the illusion that this is happening for any other reason than the Lord is fighting this battle on your behalf. I don't want anyone to have any reason to boast. So if anybody's afraid, go home. And some several thousands go home. And the Lord says, you know what? You still have too many people. Uh, We need to reduce this even more. Uh, And so he tells them, uh, he tells Gideon when they get to a stream and people drink, and he says, if people drink in, a, in one way, they stay. They drink in another way, they go. Um, and so again, uh, the Lord has Gideon reduce his army down to 300. Um, so a, an army that was around 32,000 has become 300. And so we've reduced our army by 99 Again, this is the kind of tactic that does not make sense in human terms. Um, But the Lord is clear about why he does this. He's doing this uh, to show that that the Lord is the one who's going to work victory, not not man, not mankind. Uh, The Lord also reassures Gideon. The Lord reassures Gideon. This is point F. So we see this in Judges 7, 9 through 15. So this is where I actually think um, the point that you just made Dave, uh, is more applicable. So uh, in point, yeah, seven in Judges 7, 9 through 15, that same night the Lord said to him, Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he, Gideon, went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down, so the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. 
And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. So here, the Lord is reassuring Gideon. So what's changed? I just said, well, I don't think Gideon needed to be reassured before, but now, he, now the Lord is reassuring him. The text is, quite, is pretty clear about that. So what, what do we think has changed? Quite frankly, his army went from 32,000 to 300. And so it would be understandable for them to be some fear. So the Lord uh, has Gideon go down and hear confirmation that the Lord is still with him to reassure Gideon. And then Gideon likewise reassures his men that the Lord has given the Midianites and their armies into your hand. So again, point F, the Lord reassures Gideon. Finally, we have Gideon's bizarre battle strategy. This is G, Gideon's bizarre battle strategy. Um, there's not much. There's not much of a way to make sense of this. I'll have somebody read Judges. Uh, let's see, seven, sixteen through twenty-two. Would somebody read Judges seven sixteen through twenty-two? So one little a thing to note here uh, about Gideon's bizarre battle strategy, um, the 300 men in their left hands are holding torches and in their right hand are holding trumpets. So what did they kill the Midianites with? The answer is nothing. They did nothing. They stood there, made a bunch of noise, and the Midianites killed each other and then ran mm -hmm. away. So again, the Lord is is doing it this way to be like, y'all didn't do a thing. I worked this victory, not you. So these men don't even come with swords. It's a music-making instrument and a pot. Uh, and yet they defeat an army of tens of thousands in short order because the Lord is with them. And this is what we see through the rest of chapter uh, seven and the beginning of yeah, chapter seven. We see that the Israel, the Lord works a great victory for Israel. The rest of the Israelites, the army that went back, they join them. They pursue the Midianites, drive them from the country, win a great victory, uh, and the Lord has put all of that into their hands. Uh, but in chapter eight, we see very quickly that Israel turns back to their pattern of idolatry. That's point four. Israel turns back to their pattern. Of idolatry uh, and the signs quickly are not good uh, in Judges 8 verses 1 through 3 we see that Ephraim the rest of Israel is angry so this is uh, point a Ephraim is angry they didn't get to be part of this victory and so they're kind of mad and so they're like hey Gideon why didn't you call us up like, we wanted to be part of this victory as well and this is a, a serious matter it could have been incredibly divisive for Israel in later in later sections of Judges, Israel actually does come to civil civil war in, in a variety of spots. And so Gideon wisely kind of does some, some nice diplomacy and just says, well, who am I compared to you? You're, you're great and I'm not. And so just flatters them a little bit, diffuses the situation. Nonetheless, uh, Ephraim's response of anger at a victory the Lord has wrought is concerning. So point A, Ephraim is angry. 
point B, another thing that's concerning, this is point B, two towns refused to help Gideon. Two towns refused to help Gideon. We see this in Judges 8, 4 through 17. So Gideon and his 300 men are pursuing the Midianites. They are exhausted. They're looking for food. They're looking for water. They ask two towns, hey, we're pursuing these Midianites. Can you help us out? And these towns say no. Um, this is extremely grievous. One, it's rebellion against the Lord. Gideon is the appointed judge. The, the Lord has raised him up to be a judge to work deliverance. And people of Israel are like, no, we don't want to hear what the Lord has to say. We don't want to help the Lord's appointed um, rescuer. We're not going to help you. Two, it's traitorous behavior against the rest of Israel. You're, you're legitimately not helping your own army uh, defeat enemies who have been oppressing you for quite some time. Uh, and so later, Gideon comes back and he, he brings the Lord's vengeance, um, executes several men, um, but again, this is, this is, just can, this is a, another sign that Israel is turning back to its pattern of idolatry. These two towns refuse to help Gideon. And then Israel asks Gideon to be their king. This is C, point C under number four. Israel asks Gideon to be their king. We see this in Judges 8, 22 through 28. And I will read that. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. You and your son, and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. They had golden earrings, because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw, it, threw in it the earrings of the spoil. The weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, <clears throat> and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in, a, and put it in his city in Orpha. Um, so what we see here is that Israel asks Gideon to be their king. So I'll, I'll ask all of you, what's, what's wrong with that? Why is that a mistake? Gideon didn't do it. That's one. Yep. Dave? The Lord chooses the king. The people don't. So eventually, yes. Yes, that is also true. It's still showing their trust in men and not in the Lord. Yes. That is, uh, those are all correct. But that is the point I really want to suss out, is that they think that a man is the one that can keep them safe and rescue them, despite the fact that the Lord is the one who worked this salvation and went to great lengths to demonstrate that it wasn't any man, it was the Lord. And yet the Israelites' inclination is to trust a man over the Lord. Um, so Israel asks Gideon to be their king. <clears throat> and then D, Israel, we'll get to the, the gold earrings and the ephod. We're going we're gonna to get to that as well. Um, D, Israel runs to idolatry as soon as Gideon dies. Israel runs to idolatry as soon as Gideon dies. This is Judges 8, 33-35. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their god who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. They did not show steadfast love to the family of Dribble, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So Israel, or as soon as Gideon's gone, goes right back to their old pattern. And, and Gideon doesn't end particularly, so Gideon serves relatively faithfully, but at the end there, he trips up too. He makes this golden ephod, this basically he melts down a bunch of gold, makes a garment of clothing out of gold, and it becomes a snare to him and those around them. They start to focus on money. So this is yet another warning of the idolatry that's yet to come. And as soon as Gideon dies, Israel returns to their pattern. So I said at the beginning, this pattern that we see in Judges, Israel commits idolatry. The Lord punishes them through oppression of neighboring countries. They cry out to the Lord for help. He raises up a judge, delivers them, <clears throat> and then there's peace for a time, and then they go right back to their idolatry. And so we see that cycle yet again here in Gideon. Um, Israel runs to idolatry as soon 
as Gideon dies. And so that's kind of a somber note that we end on in the story of Gideon. Um, his, his son, Abimelech, which we're not going to talk about, but essentially one commentator called him the anti-judge because he's not called by God and immediately divides Israel into bloody conflict. So like the Lord works this great rescue through Gideon, but the Israelites can't see it and go right back to the things they used to do, um, which is, of course, um, kind of, yeah, it's just a little distressing, depressing. So that's the story of Gideon. I want to talk about theological implications from the life of Gideon. I have three, um, but that's not an exhaustive list, nor are they the perfect three to choose. So what I want to do is I want to have all of you with the people who are around you take about five to seven minutes to think about theological implications from the life of Gideon. Now, what, am I, what do I mean when I say theological implications? What I'm really looking for is kind of uh, principle, timeless principles that can be drawn from this text and applied to God's people over all time. So this is not a perfect example, but um, in Leviticus, there's a lot of ceremonial hand-washing, ritual sacrifice, et cetera, et cetera. And so we don't do that, right? So it's not, that's not a one-to-one. But what is the principle we draw from all those rituals? Well, simply... The Lord's people will be holy because God is holy. And so then that would be kind of the, the overarching principle. Why is this happening in Leviticus? Because God's people are to be holy as God is holy. And then we would think about how to apply that in our own lives. So I'm looking for kind of that timeless principle, theological implication that you can draw from Gideon's life. Does anybody have any questions on that before I send you to small groups? All right, guys, go for it. So just four or five people who are right next to you. I'll put on my timer. You got like six minutes. Oh, I'm sorry. That's uh, let me. I can get you this. Is that the thing? That's not the thing. Here, I'll get it.
physiological implication. I mean, that's um, well, the printing passage is talking about that there were not many of you who were wise or strong, but God chooses the weak and the foolish. Ooh. Ooh. It's good. <laughs> the power of reading. All right. <laughs> so, certainly with Gideon and with the circumstances of the Israelite army, God chose to You have about 45 seconds. So come up with one more brilliant thing. come back together talk about some theological implications from the life of Gideon it seems like we had one two three four groups ish um, so I'll just who wants to name a theological implication they saw from the life of Gideon any one of the four groups if you don't volunteer I will progress through you one by one all right Omri go ahead Yes, that is literally my first one. Would somebody read 1 Corinthians 1, 25 through 31? 1 Corinthians 1, 25 through 31. Omri nailed it. Yes, that's correct. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring us to nothing things that are, so that no human being may, might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, but the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Great job reading. 
Actually, I appreciate I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, like we see this throughout Scripture. The Lord reverses; He brings things that the world would scorn to work salvation. I mean, the greatest example of this is Jesus Christ on the cross. This is death on a cross was something shameful, uh, a curse, something that no one. I, there was a there's there's literature in first century Rome that talks about the cross Stavros as as something you don't even look upon it's a, it's shameful to even mutter it speak it it is a a dis a disreputable death it's an ugly thing and yet the lord uses that to work the salvation of all mankind christ who's reigning over everything leaves heaven and comes down born in a barn in a manger with animals, that's not that wouldn't be our plan. I mean, our plan isn't that. Our plan's probably more like, you know, the Pharisees or the Zealots, or even Peter when he draws the sword and slices off that guy's ear. We think it's going to be glorious military or political might. That's that's where our inclinations run typically. But the Lord doesn't do that. He uses the weak to shame the wise. He makes salvation out of things that seem incredibly weak to us. So Christ embraces the shame of the cross, dies in our place to take away our sin, and yet gloriously could not be held there and rises again after the third day. Again, if a, if a human being was to write the story of the redemption of mankind, the idea of someone dying, that's probably not what we'd think of. And yet that is what the Lord does. He uses the weak to shame the strong, the foolish to shame the wise, because the foolishness of God is greater than any wisdom of mankind. So Amri, and, and credit to Jocelyn, she also got this one. She just didn't talk first. Uh, other theological implications from the life of Gideon. Yeah. We have about five. You can do one or five. It's up to you. Good. Uh, second one, we should focus not on our own worthiness and strength, but his worthiness and strength, since Gideon did not feel worthy. And also, um, we made a point that people the way God sees them, because we might see certain people as like unworthy, when they actually really are worthy and doing really good work in the church and the body to go to the believers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just to like punch in on that point a little bit, here's yet another parallel between Gideon and Moses, right? So the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush. They have a conversation, and Moses responds in in faith at first, takes off his shoes, responds to the Lord, and then the Lord says, You will speak to my people. And Moses is like, Whoa, 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 I don't talk so good. Can we can you send somebody else? Um, and Gideon in the same way is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I am the least of my family, least of my clan, least of my tribe. And so your point that it's the Lord who qualifies the called, that is correct, right? So it's not us. It's not our abilities. It's rather what the Lord chooses to do with us as his instruments. So yes, totally agree. And I can do one more point, but I'll wrap up the last three points in one. Do it. So we kind of said this idea about like this generational failure that we saw. So generational failure, uh, we need, so one implication, I probably think this is probably more practical application, but you know, we can roll with it. Yeah, we need to, we need to make sure that we testify to the Lord's faithfulness to our children, to our children's children, to try to guard against this generational drift from what the Lord would have us do. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a really good implication. Um, the other one I think you said, was it you? Yeah, that our hope must be in Jesus, not in man. Um, that was my second point. Our hope must be in Jesus, 
not in man. The first one, in case it wasn't clear, is that the Lord uses the weak to shame the strong. Um, but our hope must be in Jesus, not in men. I thought of 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, which talks about Jesus as a living hope. Um, so yeah, good job. Agree with all of those. Other theological implications from the life of Gideon. Dave. So with regard to symbols, symbols come up in, in Gideon's life in good ways and in bad ways. And I think it's just that symbols are less important than the heart. It's almost like he gets hooked on this idea of symbolism and then, oh yeah, okay, I'm going to gonna take these things, I'm going to make this thing, it'll be a memorial. And everybody You're thinking of the ephod? How, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Everybody will see how awesome I am and how awesome God is through me. And yeah. It's like, okay, this the symbol that you're trying to win friends and influence people through, it's, you're getting it backwards. You yeah. go back to what that, that fleece was doing yeah. instead. No, that's a good one. So Dave said um, Gideon's attachment to symbols, or, or frankly, in, to put it crassly, stuff. Yeah, the Lord uh, looks at the heart, yeah. not at appearances. And the Lord looks at the heart, not, not appearances. Yeah, I think that's right. That's not one. I did not have that one, but I think it's clear that, that the one of the ways Gideon stumbles is... Yeah, that, that fleece, that wanting something material, something of, of value. Um, and that is a snare both to him and his family and the people around him, which the text tells us. That's a good one. And I think just like um, a, a nuance of, of that same point is just, just across the board how seductive and how destructive like that glory is for us. So. You know, God says, I won't share my glory with another. And then, you know, Gideon's obedient and the, you know, he gets glory from the people, but I mean, we see that so many times people start off well and then just... Yeah. And it's so, it's so parallels Aaron with the golden calf. Just, yeah. okay, I want to impress people. I yeah. don't want to have that, 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 what we're sold. You know, yeah. I need to sacrifice before the people. It's uh-huh. almost like, well, my, 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 my legitimacy as a leader is, I need, I need somehow to defend that. No, the Lord will defend that. Yeah. Psalms say that the fear of man is a snare. Um, so I totally agree. Yep, I think that's good. Uh, I don't think, have you guys, have you all done one yet? It's okay if, it's okay if there isn't one. Uh, yeah, but I think most, some of them were on yeah. the team. I think one, one we also had, it just, I don't know, it might have been tapped on already, but the, it's the, the, the Lord is a covenant-keeping God. Um, oh, yeah. And that he's the one that saves that. Even, you know, even in the, be- the very beginning, uh, when Israel was doing evil on the side of the Lord, they were crying out, on account of the Midianites. And so it's just interesting that they weren't crying out on account of the evil that they were doing. That's right. Crying out because of their circumstances. Yep. And then just to see the Lord um, delivering his people and, and, and fighting for his people. And just, yeah, again, it's, it was mentioned already that the, the bizarre ways that, that God used um, that delivered his people were just the fact that they didn't do anything um, and just how that models um, our salvation as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, our greatest need. He's kept the covenant. We have not done. We bring nothing to the table. Yeah. Um, I'm literally going to restate this mainly for the audio. <laughs> but I think the point Ben just made is excellent. The idea that um, our God is a covenant-keeping God um, and that we bring nothing to the table. I think that observation from the first part of chapter 6 where the Israelites don't cry out because of their sin. They cry out because of the consequences of their sin being oppressed. Like That is so telling that we are unable... We are unable to see our true state, what we truly need salvation from, which is our own sin. And God is faithful. Romans 3.3 3 says God is faithful even if some are faithless, right? So that our faithfulness is, doesn't obstruct God's ability to remain faithful. Uh, he keeps his promises regardless. We see this throughout the entirety of Scripture, all the covenants. God's keeping his promises even though we are unable to keep any um, Praise the Lord, because this is how we're saved. Um, so I, that is excellent. Yet another point I didn't have. Um, anybody else have a theological implication? I think I have one that was touched on, but I'll just say it explicitly. But before I do, anybody? Okay, awesome. All right, so just my three were the Lord. So A, the Lord uses the weak to, to shame the strong. A few of us referenced that. B, our hope must be in Jesus, not in men. Um, that's, that's B. And C, idolatry must be rooted out kind of an obvious observation Um, but uh, idolatry is anything that ensnares our affections more than the Lord so it can be a good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing it can be a bad thing 
that we devote our lives to, but it's anything that kicks God off the throne and tries to replace it in our lives. So it could be things as wonderful as spouses and family or things as evil as the most depraved sin you can think of. But idolatry must be rooted out. And if you through the judges, you see how ensnaring idolatry is. Uh, it keeps coming back again and again. Uh, John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. It's just the way that our sinful flesh is wired to keep trying to put something in the place of God. All right, so those are our theological implications from the life of Gideon. Now we're going to talk about practical implications from the life of Gideon. So a way to think about this is we just came up with some theological principles. Um, how would we apply those in our life here in the 21st century in Delray, Virginia? I'll give you where we're going to go a little over. I'll give you about four minutes to talk amongst your same groups to think about some practical application. It says implications there. It should say application. But uh, yeah, practical applications from the life of Gideon. One minute, one more minute to think of something brilliant. Let's talk about practical applications from the life 
of Gideon. Um, who would like to share their application? Jocelyn, I bet you got a good one. <laughs> well, one that we came up with was to trust in the Lord's plan, even if it doesn't make sense to us. Probably, especially if it doesn't make sense to us. Yep. <laughs> trust in the Lord's plan, even if it doesn't make sense to us. Absolutely. It's a good one. Yeah. Um, read the scriptures so that you can understand the cyclical nature of faith through generations and you can warn your children about them. Yeah. So know the scriptures so you can understand yeah, the, the tendency of human beings to drift, particularly over generations, and then use that to instruct your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Absolutely. Let's go on. Yeah. Behind Dave. Sorry. Don't be prideful because God is the real leader. Yeah, that's right. Don't be prideful because the Lord is the real leader. Absolutely. Dave? Yeah. Live out the doctrine you know. Uh, if you know you're not supposed to be a king, don't live like a king. Yeah. Had seventy wives and you know, concubines. So you're on the anti-Gideon bandwagon. I see. All right. well, no, I, mean, I was trying to redeem him a little, but I know. I think you're right. We have I get lots it. of ways we can live like a king every day, even though sure. we know we're not supposed to. Yep. So don't try to live like a. Don't try to live like the king when you're not. It's a good one. Good one. Yeah. Don't be discouraged by the lack of faith in people around us. That's good. Oh. Let's not discredit the faith of those that we would perceive to be weak. Yep, that's a good one. So I heard you say we need to be constantly trying to root out the idols in our life and try to get out of that cycle of falling back into it. A couple of like helpful questions for me as I try to think through what is potentially an idol to me. Um, <laughs> so one is like, what do I spend my time and treasure on? Um, so what do I spend most of my time on? Um, that can be an indicator of something that's potentially too big in your life. What do I spend my money on? Your bank account, your credit card statements, all these things are just numeric representations of your value system. And so if you're spending money in a way that's chasing after things that are not of the Lord, or if your your bank account looks as such that you're spending tons of money on this, but way less on things that the Lord would have you honor with your with your money, that's something to consider. Another helpful diagnostic question for me is what does my when I am daydreaming, quite frankly, what does my mind run to? Does it run to like me hitting a home run in the World Series, or is it running to the things of the Lord? Um, there's others, there's tons, but these are questions that have helped me. Or frankly, I can ask people who know me well, what do you see me spending my time on? What do you see me getting excited about? Um, that can also be a good way to help identify and root out idolatry. Omri, you were going to say something. Sorry, I felt obligated to throw out a couple more applications. Yeah, please. Um, Good. That's good. Kevin, I think you had something to say too. Well, we had a couple others, but most of them were taken up. One was be uh, willing to obey God's call even if you feel weak or unable to complete it in your own strength. Yep. Be willing to obey God's call even if you feel weak or unable to achieve it in your own strength. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good one. Um, my three are variations on the themes that we've already touched, but I'll just put them out there for the for the 
purposes of filling your sheet. Uh, a, we should strive for godly character over competence. So I've, I thought of it differently. Like it's the same, the weak is used to shame the strong, but um, it's not our inherent talents that are gonna carry the day. Um, it's gonna be the Lord and for us as human beings, it's the cultivation of Christ-like character that is more valuable in the kingdom than your ability to do anything. Um, qualifications for eldership. Those are all character qualifications except for one, which is the ability to teach. Character is infinitely more important than your ability to do anything. Um, so I thought we should strive for godly character over competence. Uh, B, we should fight to trust only Jesus. That's just uh, the inverse of root out idols in your life. Uh, we only want to trust Jesus. And then C, uh, we should bring our fears to the Lord. I thought Gideon gives us a pretty good example of a guy who is often afraid in these texts, and yet he obeys the Lord. Um, it's, not, it's not wrong to be afraid. It's wrong to be more afraid of worldly things or other people than the Lord. So fears that are rightly ordered, where our fear of the Lord is on top, those other fears, it's, it's not wrong to have other fears beneath that, but we need to fear the Lord most of all. And so when we are fearful, uh, we want to bring those to the Lord. Uh, New Testament says, you know, who by worrying can add a single day to your life? So don't be anxious about anything. Look to the lilies of the field there. I tell you the truth, even Solomon in all his splendor is not dressed as one of these. And so we need to bring our fears to the Lord. Um, he is he is the ultimate object of our fear and reverence. Amri. Yeah, I hadn't realized it until you were saying that, but the Lord never rebukes Gideon for his fear. He encourages Yeah, uh, was it First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians five fourteen? Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Um, those things can be sinful. When when those feelings displace the Lord, that can be sinful. Yet the scriptures would tell us the right way to process those things is to bring them to the Lord. And as we do it horizontally within the context of the church, we want to encourage one another by again pointing them to the Lord. Right. So, totally. Uh, that is that is it thank you you guys were really helpful today i'm going to pray for us really quickly and then we can be off to the rest of our sunday lord we do give you praise for using the weak things to shame the strong we praise you for yeah taking things and plans that make no sense to us but working them for your glory in amazing and mysterious ways most especially we see this in the person of jesus christ who the world did not esteem but you used to bring salvation to many we pray in his name. Amen.